and our hearts soar with that thought. Nothing changes you. The same yesterday, today, and forever. We get sick, we get well, we live, we die. We flourish, we perish, and you abide. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we thrill to know you. Let the wise man glory not in his wisdom. The strong man glory not in his strength. Let us glory that we know you. In all our weakness, in all our suffering, in all our hardships, in all our disappointments and frustrations, may our hearts sing that we know you and that you've awakened us and made us your own and bought us. So sustain us, Lord, and work in this time together to make martyrs where there must be martyrs and missionaries and pastors and lay folks who say the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Work the miracle, Lord, that we long for in our lives of seeing you and knowing you and loving you and treasuring you above all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I thought I'd say three things about the election before I start. Actually, as, as, as part of, of starting, because uh, everybody's thinking about it. And number one, God decides who gets to be president. Number two, um, there are transactions in the world right now through the preaching of the gospel that are a thousand times more important than who's president in America. And the media will never report those great things. And you need to, as pastors and lay people, find what those are and make sure your people know about them. Because there are kingdom activities going on in the world that will have everlasting repercussions infinitely more important than who the next president here is. And the media don't know about them. They don't care about them. Number three, millions are watching this from hospice care centers who will be dead in weeks, and they don't frankly care. And we have a gospel for those people that goes way beyond prescription drug funds and social security benefits. You can walk into any hospice, any hospital room with a glorious message. So you need to get your people ready for that day and for those who are already in that day, you need to visit them and tell them the truth and not be too caught up. I did vote uh, a week ago. I am a citizen of two empires, two cities of one of the world, and, or man, as Augustine said, and one of God, two kingdoms, as Luther said. I'm an alien and an exile here, but I am sent back as an emissary of King Jesus to do my part in being salt and light 
So I hope you did too. Now, one more talk and then some questions and answers today. Uh, we're shifting over to talk today about the suffering of our people and particularly how our suffering as pastors affects our preaching so that it will affect our people to rejoice in God in their suffering. So that's the flow. How does our suffering affect our preaching so that it affects them? And let me just say at the outset again two or three things that I assume. One, I assume that our people are going to suffer. They must suffer. I didn't mention Philippians 1.29 yesterday. I mean, you mentioned it. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you, Christian, to suffer. And the word for granted there is not didomi. It's charizomai. It's a free gift. It's a gracious gift. The New Testament is a radical it is a strange and radical book that calls suffering a gracious gift. Now, most Americans cannot talk about this because we don't have any right to talk about this except by pointing to the Bible. If you live in some parts of the world and you've been through some experiences, you have a right to talk about this. All I can do is point to the Bible here because I've not known very deep suffering. Little bits, not a lot. So, they're going to suffer because God grants it to them to suffer. It's a free gift to everybody in the church. Come, be a Christian and get a gift. <laughs> we are preaching to disciples of Jesus, not disciples of Hugh Hefner or any health, wealth, and prosperity type folks. We're preaching Sunday after Sunday to disciples of Jesus who gives them gifts like suffering. That's the first assumption I mention again. The second one is that if our people are going to glorify God in their suffering, they have to rejoice in it. They have to rejoice in it. That's why the Bible says so often, blessed are you when men revile you. Rejoice in that day and be glad. It says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. It says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. It says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. It says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So, Dan and Laurie Porch, how are they doing in, in Guinea right now? They were in Ivory Coast on a little trip, and when they came home, their whole, in Kankan, Guinea, their whole compound had been devastated. All their stuff or a lot of their stuff, their kids' bikes and their computer stuff, it was all gone. This happened last week to our missionaries. Now, I did not hear how they responded, but I am praying that they will respond the way the folks in Hebrews 10.34 responded, which says they rejoiced in the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better and abiding possession. Now, that's very strange to respond if you go home this morning to your house and the windows are all broken out and written in red on your walls is get out of here, Christian, or something like that, will you 
get down on your knees and say, thank you. Or be like the apostles in Acts 5.41, where they left the council, where they'd been beaten, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to bear shame for the name. We are so ready and eager to run away from shame. Shame, being ashamed, being embarrassed is one of the things we will run from at all costs. And they embraced it as honor. These are strange people. And so if we're going to magnify Jesus in our suffering, we have to become like that. And we have to preach in such a way as to cultivate a people like that. Here's my third assumption. Nobody's able to be that way. It's an impossible task. Unless, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, a massive biblical revolution of worldview and the, and the meaning of life happens in our people. So much preaching is so much pablum about just getting along with the way things are instead of saying you've got to get your whole brain upside down. You've got to get your whole way of looking at, at the, the stock market and the presidential elections and your family and your job and sex and money and esteem and leisure. Get everything upside down. Preachers are in the business of turning worlds upside down for people. And so much of it is just so bland. Why would anybody want to go hear it? Young people especially, I believe, are, without even knowing it, begging their pastors, would you tell me something hard to do and give me a joyful reason for dying to do it? And their pastors are just tiptoeing around all the hard things and skipping the hard verses and not dealing with any problems in the Bible and just trying to help them get along. And Oh, we need radical preaching. Oh, we need calls to suffer. And it's a miracle when it happens. It's a miracle when it happens in the preacher. It's a miracle when it happens in the people. Listen to what Jesus said at the end of uh, John's gospel to Peter. You remember the little dialogue they were having? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then Jesus said these shocking words. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Period. And then John, the writer, interprets. And he says, Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. God has appointed a way to die and a way to live to you by which you will glorify him. Our dying is for the glory of God. Our living is for the glory of God. God appointed that Peter be crucified. And tradition has it upside down. That's not pretty. I'm sure he screamed until his mouth turned raw because it's not a voluntary thing when somebody drives a stake through your feet or hands, whether you scream or not. It's not voluntary. 
and it was for the glory of God. How? Well, by Peter's embracing it and saying as he walked to it, to die is gain. That's the way you glorify God in dying, to count dying gain because you go to be with God. So here's what I want to do in the time we have together now is to maybe look at three or four things that the suffering of a pastor will do to his preaching for the sake of the suffering of his people. Number one, God has ordained that our preaching become deeper and more winsome as we are broken and humbled and made low and desperately dependent on grace by the trials of our lives. God has ordained that our preaching become more winsome, more deep through the lowliness and brokenness that comes into our lives through trials. Listen to how Jesus said it in his own case. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly. Now, you see the connection between learning from him and lowliness in him. See that? That's a model for us. Now, Jesus was that way by nature. He was lowly by nature. We are arrogant by nature. We are self-sufficient by nature. We're self-exalting by nature. The only way God can get us broken and lowly and meek is to break us. And he does it with suffering. And therefore, our suffering is designed to make us lowly. Here's the way Paul said it. I read this yesterday. We were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself so that we would rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. In other words, if you're going to preach and come across so that there are no pretenses to self-sufficiency, he's got to break you. We were crushed so that we would rely on God, not ourselves. So God's design in getting Paul to the position where he's a crushed man and a dependent man and a childlike man and a lowly man so that he smells like a mercy lover in front of people, he crushed him to the point of death. Don't begrudge the seminary of suffering. We'll make a preacher out of you. John Newton, um, whom I'm reading to get ready for this pastor's conference that you heard about, and so you're going to hear Newton two or three times here, because I've just been reading his letters, and you know, he wrote Amazing Grace, and was the old African blasphemer and the slave traitor, and had to do a lot of uh, repenting. Here's what he wrote. It belongs to your calling of God as a minister that you should have a taste of the various spiritual trials which are incident to the Lord's people 
that thereby you may know how to speak a word in season to them that are weary. And it is likewise needful to keep you perpetually attentive to that important admonition, without me you can do nothing. Now, when I say he wants to break us, humble us, make us lowly, make us dependent on grace and mercy so that there's an aroma about us that this man lives by mercy. He's desperate for mercy to get through his days. I do not mean you don't speak with boldness or you don't speak with courage or that you don't take up hard issues or that you don't say with a loud voice, thus saith the Lord. I don't mean that. What I do mean is the boldness will be broken-hearted boldness. And the courage will be contrite courage. And when you contend for the truth in moments of crisis where doctrines are being denied, you will be a tender contender. We don't need more harsh, brash, mean-spirited pulpits. You can attract a crowd that way. Usually there'll be a crowd of angry, pugnacious people who are glad they found somebody who will beat their drum against liberals or against Democrats or, or against Republicans or against somebody. Just Oh, we finally found somebody who will pound on our enemy. You can, you can grow a church as an angry pastor. But you will drive away suffering people. And that's not what shepherds are supposed to do. But they are to be bold. And they will drive some people away in their broken-hearted boldness. Number two. God has ordained that when we preach from weakness and suffering, sustained by the joy of Christ, people see that Christ is treasured and they are loved. He has ordained that when we preach out of weakness, out of suffering, and we are manifestly being sustained by joy in God, in Christ, people at that moment, in that kind of preaching, see that Christ is treasured, and they are loved. Now, this is tricky because of heart and culture again. We just came off of a century that will go down as the century of the self. It will have other names, the century of blood. It was the most violent century in the history of the world. And it was, at least in the West, the century of the self. And almost all virtues were redefined in the 20th century to put the self at the center of them, especially the virtue of love. And that means that almost all of our people, including you and me, are so saturated with this century and this way of understanding things that we can barely grasp a 
fraction of what the Bible means by love. I think that for the world and most of the people in our churches, the essence of being loved is being treasured or esteemed. And to the degree that you feel treasured and feel esteemed by another, you feel loved. That is radically wrong. God ordains our suffering as preachers to show the radical value of Christ through our treasuring him above all things. And if somebody were to ask you as a pastor, do you treasure Christ or do you treasure me? I wonder what you would answer. I would answer, I treasure Christ and desiring to treasure him more I treasure your treasuring Christ. And my guess is that for most 20th century people, that will not satisfy their desire to be loved. Because they believe that your treasuring must terminate on them if they are to be loved, not God. Your treasuring must terminate on them and their value, not God, for them to be loved. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what New Testament biblical love is. And therefore, preaching is very hard here. Because if you want to preach so that biblically they see that Christ is treasured and they are loved, you have to change the way they feel and think about being loved. And what would that be? What would being loved feel like biblically? And I would say that being loved biblically feels not like you are making much of me, but that you are patiently helping me enjoy making much of God. Being loved does not mean that my esteem for myself And my sense of being treasured grows. Being loved means that somebody will lay down his life to enable me to treasure Christ. Because if you preach in such a way that you define being loved as being treasured, treasuring terminates on them and they feel it that way, you hand them right into the hands of the devil and right into the hands of the world who is working overtime to get them to put themselves at the center of the universe and you are avoiding the hard work of pointing them to the one reality that can satisfy their vacant 
empty, craving souls, and that is God and the treasuring of God as their all in all while they forget about themselves. This is a big challenge. This is a huge challenge. Our aim in preaching is not to help people feel treasured, but to help them treasure God. Anybody can help a person feel treasure. It takes no work of the Holy Spirit whatsoever. We are spring-loaded to think ourselves as treasures. If somebody would just tell me often enough, I would really sleep well. That's very easy. That's why contemporary psychology is built on it. Because anybody can do it. It doesn't take God. Well, if it doesn't take God, it's not biblical. God is into revolutionizing people's frameworks of love. And he wills that he be the treasure of their lives. And that their own sense of joy be a reflex of beholding God. They're not to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon with a mirror in their hand trying to get happy. Put the mirror down and look at majesty. And forget about your little puny self standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look at it. Look at it. Be swept up into God. Stand on the edge of God and let your heart expand until it can almost get around God. And then you will know infinite joy and all this sense of needing to be stroked so that you feel the center of the treasuring of the universe is God. And you know that the treasuring of God is what the universe is about. And you were put on the planet to have the awesome privilege of treasuring God with your personality. And when you preach and the Holy Spirit comes in your suffering so that they see Christ being treasured by you and joy rising up from Christ in you, then they will see and feel that Christ is treasured and they are being loved and that those are one. Treasuring Christ, experiencing love are one. There is no, I'll give you a little practical we crafted a worship, um, mission statement at our church. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's our mission statement. That's my life mission statement. To which someone asked me once, shouldn't we have something about loving people in our mission statement? You know what I said? That is my definition of loving people. I exist at any cost to spread a passion 
for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's my definition of love. Which means this person to have a clue so 20th century, so saturated by the need to put the self at the center, they couldn't even recognize love when they saw it. If you'll lay down your life to so speak and so embrace a people that they come to have a passion for the supremacy of God, for their what else is love? Unless you're a 20th century self-centered person, and then that won't satisfy you. You've got to have yourself more at the center than that. Well, we got our work cut out for us in preaching. Number three, the suffering of the preacher helps him see from Scripture what he must say to his suffering people. The suffering of the preacher helps him see in Scripture what he must say to his suffering people. Now, I, I saw this in the Psalms, and I, I, I heard Martin Luther talk about it, so I'm going to let Luther talk about it for a minute. Luther got this so right. Luther suffered a lot. And he saw in Psalm 119, 67 and 71 these words. Behold, I'm sorry, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I won't embarrass anybody teaching exegetical methods, but is that one of them in your class? Do you have along with Greek and and grammar and syntax and historical backgrounds and cultural backgrounds and audience, blah, 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 and, and, uh, and suffering? We'll add it to the syllabus because it's biblical. It was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn the meaning of your statutes. If we don't suffer, we won't get it. A non-suffering person will not understand parts of the Bible. Here's what Luther said. I want you to know how to study theology in the right way. I have practiced this method myself. Here you will find three rules... They are frequently proposed throughout Psalm 119 and run thus. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, tribulation. And tribulation, he says, anfechtungen in German, he called the touchstone of theology. They teach you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. And he proved it in his experience over and over again. He wrote, and this is typical Luther. I love to read Luther. He's just so bombastic. And you know, he has to he has to spend hours repenting at the end of every day because of what he did with his mouth. And so I, I feel so kinship with Luther in this. For as soon as God's word becomes known through you, he says, the devil will afflict you with 
with, and make you a, a real doctor. Meaning a, a doctor of the soul. Make you a real doctor and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. For I myself owe my papists many thanks for so beating and pressing and frightening me through the devil's raging that they have turned me into a fairly good theologian. <laughs> driving me to a goal I should never have reached. Well, that's typically Luther. But remarkably true. There are many reasons to love your enemies. Jesus, Jesus said to, it's godlike. You might win them. And they are good, good uh, exegetical helpers. Psalm 119 verse 71 teaches that the suffering of the preacher opens to him the scriptures in a way that he would not otherwise know them. And so it shows him what to say to his people. So let's linger here for a minute and ask, all right, what do you see in the scriptures to say to your people if suffering opens your eyes to see it? And here, I think I have two or three things. One is real obvious, I've said it already, but number one, when by suffering you are granted eyes to see a theme in scripture like your people will suffer, you'll preach that. That's why I've been preaching it here. It'll be running through your, your sermons. You will preach to your people that they must get sick. You will preach to your people that they must be persecuted. You will preach to your people that they must die. Let me give you a text for each of those. Number one, they're going to get sick. You will go with them to Romans 8.23. We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, this groaning body. We want to put it off. We want to have it clothed with super life so that, <coughs> so that we will not suffer sickness like Paul suffered and Timothy suffered and everybody suffers. Or... It says in uh, uh, Revelation 21.4, our, our crying and our pain and our tears will be taken away in the last day. And I mention that because you will teach your people to pray for healing. And you will teach them that the blood-bought, full and final healing is for the last day when all tears will be wiped away, according to Revelation 21. And in the meantime, God sometimes gives you a down payment of that, and sometimes he doesn't. He's not obliged to. It's an over-realized eschatology to think Christians won't get sick. So you'll teach your people to get sick. You'll develop a theology of sickness. 1980, sixth sermon that John Piper preached to his new church when he came as pastor was entitled, Christ and Cancer. I walked through basics so that my people would know where I stood, so they'd know what they would expect if they get cancer and I come to visit them in the hospital. Is he going to say, if you had faith, you wouldn't be here? Is that what you're going to say, pastor? What are you going to say when you come? I don't know if I want you to come. And so you need to get it out there 
fast, you need to develop a theology of sickness and a theology of suffering so that they know how you're going to pastor them. Then you're going to teach them that they're going to be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And of course you're going to balance that by warning them that they shouldn't try to provoke offense. The gospel is offensive. It's rightly understood in carnal people's hearts. The path of sacrifice lived around selfish, well-to-do people who who want always to avoid pain and avoid suffering and and, and maximize their comforts and you you live a certain lifestyle of of suffering, they're going to not like you. They're going to find ways to guilt you and, and make you Get out of their lives because you, frankly, are a conscience they don't want to deal with. I, I know a missionary, and I did not know this about him until last Sunday when one of the young women in our church who knows him far better than I do says, do you know he doesn't own anything except the clothes on his back and what they can carry? He owns no car, no house. I've watched this man for some years and admired him as one of my heroes and uh, he's got cancer. If I say too much more, you're going to know who it is. <laughs> uh, and he just gets on a plane with his wife, and he goes to Rwanda to help with that crisis a few years ago. He heads off to the Philippines and works among the youth there and gets in the big garbage catastrophe that they had there a few months ago. And he gets on the plane, and he flies to, uh, where was he last? In, somewhere in Africa. He just goes and serves. He's the head of a mission. He just, he's mobilizing people. He's modeling for people. He owns nothing. One of the happiest. One of the most radical. One of the most lay your life down. And I thought, what a way to live. What a way to live. I would, just, I would like to get rid of my little Chevy Lumina and not have to worry about a car. That'd be nice. I commend some pretty radical things to you in I don't know what they are. You know. God will show you. And you will teach your people not only a theology of sickness, not only a theology of persecution, you'll teach them a theology of death because they're all going to die and you want them to glorify God in their death. So those are three things you're going to teach them when your eyes are open to the scriptures because of your own dying and your own suffering and your own persecution. And, and you might say, my goodness, you're so taken up with death. And What about life, for goodness sakes? Aren't people supposed to live? And my answer to that is, you know, the kind of living I want to see from my people is the kind of radical living that only comes from learning how to die long before you die. So that you're not afraid of death. People that aren't afraid of death and aren't afraid of dying and have their future utterly secure in God and have been called by a radical Jesus who's going to love them infinitely forever and ever and he calls them into his peculiar kind of discipleship. They're the most radical people in the world. It's the people that are afraid to think about death who pad their lives with all kinds of things and look like every other American, right? It's the people who've got it settled and are thus dangerous because you can't threaten them. That's the kind of people I want to breed by my preaching. So I don't think we're nearly heavenly-minded enough. Some people say, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Wrong! You're not nearly heavenly-minded enough 
They rejoiced in the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better and lasting possession. Where did that radical joy come from as they watched their houses get plundered and sang, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Where did that come from? Heavenly mindedness is where it came from. Radical belief that just tomorrow I may and that would be gain. Whoa, let it come. Bring it on. Make my day, torturer. And then we're going to teach them not only that they suffer, that they get sick, that they die, that they are persecuted, but that God is sovereign over all their sickness and all their persecution and all their... And that he designs all of their suffering for their everlasting good. I think John Newton is right when he says that one of Satan's chief devices against God's people is, quote, to hide from them the Lord's designs in permitting Satan thus to rage. You don't want to... You don't want to hide from people the designs of God in their suffering. Satan wants you to hide. And it's a tragedy today. Who is complicitous with Satan on this? Some of you will stumble over the word designs. God really designs, plans, has a purpose beforehand for your sufferings. William Barclay, everybody was reading a generation ago in the pastorate, was an old-line liberal in Scotland. I was amazed how many evangelicals used his commentaries. He wrote in his spiritual autobiography, I believe that pain and suffering are never the will of God for his children. In other words, God never has purposes in your pain and suffering. It's never his will. It's never his plan. Open theists are the people today that are assisting Satan in concealing the designs of God in our suffering. One of them says, God does not have a specific divine purpose for each and every occurrence of evil. Another one says, when an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I don't think we can go looking for the purpose of God in the event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of tragedy caused by someone else, but I regard this simply as a piously confused way of thinking. Now, I hope you don't preach that way. And I plead with you not to preach that way. Get Steve Roy's dissertation and wake up from your slumbers if you are tending towards open theism. Preach another way. And to the degree that you suffer, and God is with you in your suffering, and you rejoice in your suffering, then you will see in the Bible more clearly, and you will say it more sweetly, and you will experience it more deeply, the purposes of God in suffering. I'll list them for you. You will teach your people because you've experienced it deeply and you'll teach it with tenderness. You won't beat them with this. You will patiently help them to discover this. I've been working for 20 years with some people to help them understand the sovereignty of God and some of them still don't get it. 
And that's okay. We're just going to keep working on it until one or the other of us dies and we understand fully. But here's what I want them to see. I want them to see that all their suffering is the discipline of their father for their good, Hebrews 12. All their suffering is the refining fire of faith, 1 Peter 1.7. All their suffering is the crucible of perseverance and character and hope, Romans 5.3. All their suffering is the preparation of eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4.17. All their suffering, if they will believe and if they will rejoice, will be the display of the supreme value of Christ when they say the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It's not by accident. It's by design that all wise, especially old people, say with Malcolm Muggridge at the end of his life, looking over the 90 years, I realize I have never made any progress in good times. I only progressed in hard times. Now, when you experience that, you will be more alert to what the Scripture teaches about the designs of God in hard times. And when you see it in Scripture, you will preach it for suffering people. Please do that. Lastly, very briefly, um, I want to point out one more connection between what suffering does to us in our preaching for the sake of our suffering people, and it is this. Our suffering as pastors will show us that the timing of teaching and touching is crucial. That the timing of teaching and touching is crucial. There is a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And preaching involves timing. Preach the whole truth about suffering and about the sovereignty of God and his designs in our suffering in daytime when it is day so that when the night comes, and you stand beside the pool of the suicide victim's blood in the basement, or you stand beside anything, because the timing will have been wrought by your own suffering. You'll understand timing. There is a time to speak and a time to be silent. There is a time to refrain from embracing and say, Thus saith the Lord. And there is a time to shut your mouth and embrace and sob. And your own suffering will teach you this. This is what you learn in the seminary of suffering. And so I close. For the glory of God and for the everlasting satisfaction of your people in God, and for the sake of the unreached peoples of the world whom your radical people will lay their lives down to reach, endure hardship, rejoice in suffering, and preach the word.